What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week of Burn It All Down. It's not the feminist sports podcast you want, but it is the feminist sports podcast you need. This week, we have a full house, including independent sports writer from Toronto, Shereen Ahmed, sports reporter and radio host in Chicago, Julie DeCaro, Lindsay Gibbs, a journalist at Think Progress, Jessica Luther, an independent journalist from Austin, Texas, and myself, Brenda Elsie, professor of history at Hofstra University. I have the honor of driving the proverbial bus this week, and I'm veering straight for the U.S. Open and the World Cup qualifiers, and we'll also visit our burn pile and celebrate the badass woman of the week. So let's get right into it. An exhilarating event, the U.S. Open. Jessica, you've been live tweeting tennis from the Burn It All Down account, and from all indications, you have... <clears throat> enjoyed this tournament. <laughs> oh, it's been good. So on Saturday, 24-year-old American Sloane Stevens beat 22-year-old Madison Keys in straight sets 6-3, 6-0 to win her first Grand Slam title at the U.S. Open. Stevens was unseated at the tournament because she had foot surgery in January and wasn't even walking on the foot until the middle of April, and she was not able to stand and hit until May 16th of this year. But her comeback has been quick. Last month, Stevens was ranked 957th, yes, you heard that right, in the world, and leaves the U.S. Open ranked 17th. Stevens and Keys are good friends, which was readily apparent post-match yesterday. First, they had a prolonged emotional hug at the net that had all but robots crying. Then, before they went on stage for the trophy presentation, Stevens sat down next to Keys, and the two were talking and laughing. And then during their post-match remarks, they showed each other love, talking about how important their friendship is. Sloan wishes it could have been a draw. Madison wouldn't have wanted to lose to anyone else. The significance of this match goes well beyond the specific friendship, though. Let me explain what this means to U.S. tennis, and especially about the changing face of it, in large part thanks to the storied and long careers of the Williams sisters. So the four finalists this year on the women's side were Americans, Venus Williams, Coco Vandeweghe, and of course, Stevens and Keys. This was the first all-American U.S. Open women's semifinal since 1981, and the first all-American women's final since Serena beat Venus in 2002. It was the first All-American U.S. Open final not involving one of the Williams sisters since Martina Navratilova beat Chrissy Everett in 1984. Prior to the Williams sisters, the last American woman to win a Grand Slam tournament was Jennifer Capriotti in 2002. The last American man to win a Grand Slam was Andy Roddick back in 2003. That feels like a lifetime ago. And importantly, this was the first time three black women have made the semifinals of a tennis Grand Slam. After the U.S. Open, Venus will be ranked in the top five for the first time since January 1st, 2011. That's amazing. 
Keys will be at number 12. Vandeweghe will rise to a career best number 16. And Stevens, as I mentioned, will be number 17. And Serena, who's currently ranked 22 and a very new mom, says she's going to be back in 2018, possibly to the first Grand Slam of the year, the Australian Open. That, I mean, that is just so much to take in. It's also amazing. The tournament itself, the play was so high. I mean, one of my favorite things about tennis, and I've said this repeatedly, is that when you watch the Grand Slams, there are so many women all over the place, both as athletes and commentators. And after their quarterfinal and semifinal wins, when Tom Rinaldi was interviewing these U.S. players, he kept asking them about, quote, the state of American tennis and rarely, if ever, qualified it as the state of American women's tennis. And I loved that so much because they are U.S. tennis and I'm here for it. To be clear, the men also played a tournament this year. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, Juan Martin Del Potro played two spectacular matches, one to beat number six Dominic Team while Delpo was suffering from a virus and quite frankly looked like he was suffering from a virus. That was to get into the quarterfinal. And then in the quarterfinal, he beat Roger Federer. Nadal ended Delpo's streak in the semifinal, and so Nadal's going to face South Africa's Kevin Anderson in the final. Anderson's going to be playing in his first Grand Slam final. We're recording on Sunday before the match, so by the time you hear this, we'll have a new U.S. Open Grand Slam winner on the men's side. If Nadal wins it, it'll be his 16th championship, putting him three titles behind Federer. That's amazing, that those two men. <laughs> Lindsay, you are our resident tennis expert. What are your thoughts about these past two weeks in New York? I have so many thoughts, Jess. <laughs> I imagine so. <laughs> Look, I want to talk a little bit about Sloane Stevens because I just kind of can't stop thinking about her and the journey that she's been on. I've been covering tennis. I think a lot of people know that before I started at Think Progress and started really freelancing, tennis was my foray into sports journalism. I had my own tennis blog, well, that I started with a couple of other people. And it was a sport I followed exclusively. I would get to as many tournaments as I could. I just, I followed it really, really closely. And since Sloane Stevens has kind of come on the scene, she's been one of the players I've probably written about the most. Because she was just, she's always just been really fascinating. And ever since she, in 2013, upset Serena Williams in the quarterfinals of the the Australian Open to make it to the semifinals, and was really just like shuttle launched onto the like this national narrative stage. And it, it was tough for her, you know, there were a lot of, there was a lot of backlash. She had an ESPN interview where she talked really negatively about Serena because she said, you know, that... Serena, after she had beaten her, no longer talked to her anymore. And now that Serena like had deleted her on Blackberry Messenger and like unfollowed her on Twitter. And Sloan, being a little naive, like said all this on the record to a reporter because she didn't really think it was on the record, but it was. And that reporter had every right to, you know, report that. You know, I think that that sparked a lot of controversy. There were years and years and years where it didn't seem like she cared. And it was really frustrating, I think, for a lot of tennis fans and a lot of journalists and and, and myself included to watch this this young, you know, like this person with all of this talent, all this potential, just kind of roll her eyes at the very sport like she was playing. And I always knew it was a defense mechanism, but it was hard to, it's still really hard to kind of like break that down and process it when it just keeps happening over and over and over again. And, And admittedly, when you're in press conferences with, you know, 
player after player who was just giving like their heart and soul to this. And then Sloane Stevens would come into press. This is from 2014 at a tournament in Charleston, where I remember she was just like very nonchalant, very blase. She was like, I have a lot of tennis to play. I'm just going to enjoy it. Like even if my ranking drops to 800, I doubt it'd matter very much. That's what she said. And she was also like, I could play 10 more years of tennis. Maybe I win a Grand Slam. You know, that would still be pretty good if I was still pretty consistent. I'm not really trying to rush and do anything fabulous. That's kind of the condensed of her marks. I gave her a hard time for those remarks at the time. And now here she is. Her ranking didn't drop to 800. It dropped to 900. (laughs) And it wasn't six years later that she won a slam. It was three years later. And I think that's just a really big testament to her belief in herself. She was off tour for 11 months after a foot surgery, as Jess mentioned. And I think that not I don't think like this is what she said that that time away really allowed her to kind of a live the life that she had been missing out on when she was Mm. following the tour day in day out, but also to really just be okay with loving the sport and be okay with, you know, with caring. And she's always going to be a little affected, but I just I just really love it. I want to read one of her her exchanges from the post-match presser, which I feel like just show what amazing like personality she is. So the question was, I know it's kind of fresh, but having done this once, does it give you the hunger to win another slam? And Sloan answers, of course, girl. Did you see that check that lady handed me? <laughs> like, <laughs> there are amazing pictures. You guys should look them up. There are pictures of her when she realizes how check. big the check is. Yeah, it's, it's just so spectacular. <laughs> it's such a she, good that photo. That doesn't mean you want to play tennis. I don't know it's... what will. And then, <laughs> then they said, the next question was, if I'm not mistaken, it's been a few years since someone in the women's final managed to score a bagel. So to win a set six love. Does it make you feel bad for Madison? And Sloan goes, bad for her? She was in the finals too. What do you mean? Did you see the check she's about to get? I'm sure she'll be just (laughs) Keeping it real. I just absolutely love that. And like one of the really cool things about watching the match yesterday was that Keys, we've talked about this before on the on the podcast. She Lindsay Davenport is her coach, right? So she has a female coach, which is pretty rare in the sport. And then Sloan, I'm sorry, Lindsay, do you know his co- her coach's name? Because it's not coming. yeah, Camille Murray. Yes. Yeah, so and then Sloan has a black man as her coach in the stands, and like these are just images you don't normally see and and courtside in tennis, and it's just like the whole thing was spectacular to watch. There was a really fun tweet from Stars and Stripes FC because yesterday Sloan's boyfriend, Jose Altador, actually scored a brace. He were, he plays for Toronto FC. And the title of the piece was Boyfriend of U.S. Open Champion Sloan Stevens Scores a Brace Against San Jose, which I thought was hilarious because uh, <laughs> Stevens was previously mentioned in another article as his girlfriend. And now she was sort of elevated to be the U.S. Open champ. And he was her boyfriend. So it was kind of like a fun play. And I'm really glad we saw that. Like, that was just fun. Yeah, that was great. Lindsay, do you want to wrap us up? Yeah, I just want to say like Sloan has been through so much. And that's another thing I feel like I was glad it wasn't talked about a whole lot because I feel like the focus was really on her tennis. But I also feel like it's just it's just kind of an amazing backstory. Her mother is Sybil Smith, who was the first African-American to become an All-American swimmer on the NCAA's Division One level. And her father was a former running back in the NFL. But they divorced when Sloan was really young. And he she really didn't have much contact with her father. And 
essentially, you know, she didn't reconnect with him till much later in her life. The a her stepfather really raised her and she was really close to her stepfather. He passed away though of cancer in 2007. And right around that time she embarked on just a phone relationship with her birth father. And they they only talked on the phone. They met in person, I think, a couple of times, she said, but they talked on the phone. And he died then suddenly in 2009 in a car crash. And that was while she was at the U.S. Open playing juniors that she found out. And it oh, comes wow. to find out she didn't know this until after his death by searching on the Internet. And, you know, she's talked about this before some, but that he had pled guilty for rape charge in his early 20s and was actually facing another current rape charge when he died. So she has been through just so much and really overcome just so much. And it's just great to see her really coming into her own. And I just I just really wish her all the best. I just love her. Yes, Um, me too. And I keep watching that hug between her and Madison Keyes over and over. (laughs) Hug me too. Okay, let's move on to the next topic. Another exciting, exhilarating tournament coming up, and we're qualifying for it right now, the World Cup qualifiers for Russia 2018. They've been maddening, heartbreaking, amazing, and the last few weeks, I've hardly been able to keep myself together. We only know eight of the 32 teams that will earn their spot to compete in Russia 10 short months from now. There's so much up in the air, but we will have answers very, very soon. We know it's a human rights debacle that will cost 15 to $20 billion, and yet it engages the world in such a way that it's really hard to look away. Shireen, who have you been paying attention to? Well, thanks, Brenda. I can't believe it's 10 months away. Like That just freaked me out a little bit, particularly because of all the discussion <laughs> around it. There have been a lot of concerns, as you mentioned, about Russia and how they'll handle things and just even leading up to this. We already mentioned this on the podcast a couple shows ago about how like pre-festivities leading up to the World Cup ended up in our burn pile because we're completely racist, like people are using blackface. So there was, there's that, like we're still dealing with that. But in terms of the qualifiers, we haven't, okay, first of all, we haven't heard anything out of Africa that is solidified. There's no firm results yet. We all are expecting Ghana, Nigeria, and Egypt, obviously, to go. They boast some star players like Mohamed Saleh for Egypt. But I mean, one of the things that caught my attention, and I was in the middle of traveling back when this happened, was Syria scored equalized against Iran. And Iran, as known as Team Mali, has had quite a performance in the World Cup previously. Like they they a pretty strong showing. And so for Syria, which is first of all a country that's completely ravaged by war and haven't had training grounds, a lot of their players play abroad and they don't actually have a team camp. I mean everything in the country is decimated. For them to have tied up and qualified and equalized in that way to give themselves another shot is absolutely incredible. And the video went viral of the announcer calling out the goal and it like literally was heartbreaking like he's just he's in disbelief and he's in joy and he's elated because for millions of displaced Syrians around the world this is the one thing that they can cling to even though within 
Syrian football camps, there's a lot of divisiveness about how this win has been co-opted by the regime and whatnot. I mean, I have some Syrian friends that live in Toronto, and one of them actually said to me, and it, my translation is going to be very loose, was that, you know, this is one thing that this is the joy that we still have. They don't have a women's team. They don't have junior teams. They don't have developed camps anymore. So for them to get this far is is pretty miraculous. Anyway, so that's that's pretty great. And moving on a little bit towards South American teams, we see that Argentina is struggling. And I know, Brenda, you mentioned... How can you bring that up with me this morning? I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> and I know having a World Cup without Messi is unfathomable, but I mean, oh. we don't know. And he can't carry the team, even though like Angel Di Maria is there. I don't know why everyone thinks Argentina is only Messi. Like, it's not just Messi. It's never just been him. They have some other players that are pretty, you know, aforementioned and, and pretty good anyway, but it just doesn't seem to be working out. I mean, I'm looking for Costa Rica to just to advance. Like, I love them. I think they're fun. Brazil had a really poor showing in the last World Cup, and we'll see what happens there. But I don't know. I think that'll be really, really interesting. The African Confederation, sorry, the Asian Confederation is going to pull out some really interesting things as we're seeing. So I'm looking forward to seeing what happens as we move forward. We know that, you know, Germany will advance. We'll see what happens. Spain actually just totally thrashed Italy 3-0 in, in a qualifier as well. And that's, I think Spain's developing in their own way because they were completely humiliated in the last World Cup. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens as they move forward. I'm looking forward to it. I, again, the conundrum of the World Cup and this major, you know, militarized, capitalized, like, corporate, sort of mega event that makes me feel icky, particularly because it's in Russia. And it's going to, you know, precurse the 2022, which is in Doha, which is even ickier. But, yeah. you know, just sort of moving forward. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. What do you think? You know, I mean, you're right. When you think about 11 players, it's different than sports like basketball. It's, you know, it, it's hard to hang it on one person. But a World Cup without Messi is like... <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. It's no good. He got this weird suspension this year. Yeah. So there's been that, that he was out for a couple of the qualifiers, and then they strangely reversed it. So I wouldn't even put it past FIFA. I guess maybe this is paranoid to invent some sort of way in which Argentina gets in if they can't do it on their own. I know that that sounds creepy, but I wouldn't be surprised if there's some strange thing that happens where it disqualifies Peru's points or something like that. I'm kind of interested in what you guys think about the U.S. team. I have a soft spot. Yeah. <laughs> I, have soft, I have a soft spot for U.S. soccer because because it's different than the other U.S. sports. You know, the soccer community in the U.S. is really engaged with the world. And I feel like like I sort of, I kind of pull for them in, in a way, even though I'm a South American sort of soccer person. I don't know. What do you guys think? They're hanging a lot on Christian Pulisic. Is that how I say it? Pulisic. Pulisic. Right? I mean, he's 18. Do other people watch US? Do you guys care? I well, kind of care. I, I, I watch, yeah, of course I, I care. I watch only for <laughs> Tim Howard because I think he's beautiful. But I'm well, not gonna... he cost us a goal the other night. I know, so I, I mean, know. I, I say this. I'm Canadian, so I have no authority to talk about like my nationals, like a Nash criticize someone else's national team. But I think that the last World Cup for y'all was was pretty exciting. I think you made it to quarters, if I'm not mistaken. And yeah, but I, it's it's. I mean, I don't know. I feel like, you know, I've been, I was raised in the U.S. soccer community and 
I feel like for 25 years, it's been, okay, this is going to be the, you know, we're on the verge. Can we, and, and they still play the same kind of balls in the air, 50-50 balls, bouncing around like a pinball ball that has gotten them not very far. And, and you know, it was, I mean, I was really upset with the way that Jurgen Klinsmann's tenure ended in the U.S. I thought he was going to be a great change of pace for the U.S. soccer, and it just didn't wind up being the case. Bruce Arena came back. They seemed to have new life. And all of a sudden, they have just played terribly in qualifiers. So with all the great, you know, we always have the next young star coming out in U.S. soccer, but they just seem to be stuck in this position of mediocrity that they can never quite get past. And as a fan, it's really, really frustrating. It's it's always been that, you know, you can cheer for the U.S., but then you also have to have your other backup team that you cheer for <laughs> because they're not going to go that far, you know? So it's like, like I want to be in a country that is – a force in soccer and there we're just not there yet. So we're all moving to Germany. <laughs> so, <laughs> sure. Well, that's just more long ball play. Yeah. I'm not I'm not sure you're going to you're going to get yeah, a different true. style, but you might get different results, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean I I heard an interview with Grant Wald this week where he was talking about Pulisic as the real deal and that he's been involved in I don't know 9 of the last 11 goals or something like that. So I don't know. I was just really interested to see it. At the same time, I feel like sometimes the frustration with the U.S. doesn't take into account that they're playing these teams that are really pretty good. I mean, I heard people were like, how can we lose to Costa Rica? It's like, well, Costa Rica is pretty good. What well, are you talking Taylor about? Taylor Navas is pretty damn good. Yes. Like, well, it's... <laughs> It's not just that, though. It's the frustration of watching it at the lower levels and seeing just the same. And I'm sure it's the same in every country. But we just don't have the pool of players to pull from that other countries do where every single kid plays soccer. So it's it's watching that like same old stupid politics and the same old like it's become an elite sport for kids in this country that you have to be able to pay a fortune to play on a travel team to have any chance of moving up and getting seen by the national recruiters and that really shouldn't be the way it is and that's yeah. a big part of the problem well you yeah. you all can revel in the fact that at least you have the some of the greatest players that are female in the world so <laughs> that's true and, and we do and we do. in your world champions and you know I would I hold that in high regard because American soccer is is pretty great in in some ways but you're right Julie it's it's a completely elitist class of system and that's unfair to the yeah yeah the pay-to-play system doesn't seem to be working out yeah. No, for for U.S. soccer, at and all. I say this as someone who paid for like you know ten years for my kid to play. So yeah, I pay every week. <laughs> well, look, you guys, yeah, maybe, right. maybe Sloane Stevens' boyfriend will save the U.S. national team. <laughs> <laughs> I love me some Josie Altador. Oh yeah, <laughs> Toronto. I I love this city. In fact, our dear friend Stacy Stacy Mayfels was at the match yesterday, so it would be check in with her and see how everything was. Apparently he found out that she was that she won the US Open during the match like his mom mouthed it to him. Oh. <laughs> yes. That's Love so it. wonderful. I didn't realize he was yeah, he was in the middle of the match when she was right? playing. Yeah, he, he scored sense. he scored the two goals while she was winning the US Open. Oh, that's so <laughs> lovely. Oh, yeah, nice brace. Story. Nice yeah. brace for him. I don't want to leave this segment without mentioning though the Iran Syria match. Shireen, you've written about this. What happened with some of the women that held tickets? 
Uh, okay, so the, I've, I've this I've written before. I've written about this before. Iran actually has imposed a stadium ban on women, and not just for football, for basketball, for volleyball, which is also huge in that country. And there's been campaigns happening for a really long time. They really started mobilizing in 2009. There's campaigns like Let Women Enter and one particular one, which is on Twitter called Open Stadiums. And um, that's my contact for this, for this information. And so basically what happened was the Iranian Football Association messed up and they sold tickets to women. Uh, and the women obviously thought that they would have access and they didn't. And this has happened before. I mean, women in that country that are activists and advocates for this have, you know, really, really pushed out and pleaded with international sports federations like FIVB, like FIBA and FIFA to make change. And they will say that, that we don't want to interfere on countries' politics, which is bullshit. And I think it's sidestepping the issue because not allowing women to have access to sport is actually against those charters of those federations to have equality between men and women to access the sport. So it's just, it's like a gong show because the interesting thing about the stadium ban, a lot of people don't realize this ban only applies to Iranian women. So Syrian women who are coming to watch were allowed to enter the stadium. And we've seen this with Korea playing when they came to Iran, Korean women were allowed to enter the stadium. And like, that's why this ban makes no sense. Because if you're really going to be super misogynist, then fine, don't allow any women, but to selectively not allow your own women to go enter, it absolutely makes no sense. And in the last couple of weeks, we've seen, I got reports, even though I was I was traveling, I kind of intermittently had Wi-Fi and I saw that Iranian sports journalists and their team captain a month ago spoke out against this, which is unprecedented. So we're seeing change and people speaking out, Iranian superstars and prominent folks speak out against it, which is really important because I think if the change comes, it will only come from within. Well, thanks, Shireen, for that. And I know we're going to keep up on on the World Cup qualifiers. If you're a soccer person among sports people, let's admit it. I mean, you you feel like this is important and and superior, even <laughs> if it's corrupt and morally rehen- reprehensible. You're like, dude, every country on earth cares about this. What is wrong with us? Like, what's wrong with us? I know everything. I I know. I feel feel bad. Just what we're trying to figure out every time we do this podcast. What is wrong with us for still caring about all this stuff? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But now it's time for everyone's favorite segment where we take things that we've hated this week and throw them onto the burn pile. Julie, do you want to start us off? I will start. I know that some of the stuff that happened this week in college sports is going to come up again, I have a feeling, but I want to talk about a couple of developments this week in just the, I guess, rape culture. Is that like a beat in college sports? I feel like it should be, and Jessica covers it. But (laughs) there is an anonymous Notre Dame student who filed a lawsuit in Indiana alleging that a football player raped her in his dorm room in January of last year, and that instead of dealing with the alleged assault, the school mishandled it, covered it up. Up. 
And then that was paired with a report that came out of CNN that said they have a Pennsylvania State Police report that suggests that Joe Paterno knew of at least one prior sexual act of abuse committed by Jerry Sandusky when he met with Mike McQuarrie in 2002. You know, the Paterno people have always said he didn't know and he got a bad rap, you know, for something that, that Jerry Sandusky did. But there's mounting evidence that Joe Paterno knew as well that these allegations against Jerry Sandusky were out there and did nothing. So, you know, it, it feels like if we look at a time when sexual assault on college campus started really coming to the forefront of the news cycle, it probably started with the Lizzie Seaberg case in Notre Dame. She was a, a young woman who wound up killing herself after being raped by a Notre Dame football player. And so just seeing this stuff all these years later, we're still dealing with the same garbage on college campuses over and over and over and the same allegations of covered up. I've had it with this culture. And as someone who's getting ready to send a kid to college in a few years, it is just absolutely sickening to me. I want to burn the whole thing. Burn. Uh, burn. Lindsay, what you got? Oh, some fun stuff. I had a tough time coming up with what I was going to say this week because there's just so much. <laughs> but look, I'm going to come down with this co-opting of Pat Tillman, who is a former Arizona Cardinals football player who served in the military and died in Iraq. And I just want to, players are now co-opting his memory to use against Kaepernick, basically. Tyler Eifert, who is a tight end for the Cincinnati Bengals this week, tweeted out a thing that said, my cleats for tomorrow's game and the reason why I stand for the national anthem, Pat Tillman. And then he did a whole article called Why I Stand. And he wrote Pat Tillman on his cleats that he's wearing today. Now, our friend Dave Zirin of The Nation had some really good tweets on this, which I will link in the show notes. He has been adamant, who's talked to a lot of people who knew Pat Tillman, that this is not what Pat Tillman would want his legacy to be. First of all, Pat Tillman was actually killed in friendly fire, and it was covered up by the government. And they used his death as propaganda, essentially, for the military and for the army. So that's bad. (laughs) And, you know, so Pat Tillman did not have this one-size-fits-all heroic notion of, you know, what the U.S. military was and and should be. And when Dave Zirin was tweeting out his thoughts on this, someone responded, I served with Pat Tillman. Trust me, he would have taken a knee with Kaepernick. The Tillmans are princes among men with kindness at heart. So I just want to kind of end with that and say, like, we need to stop kind of co-opting these figures to fit our purpose. And I mean, look, same on same on the left side. Like, that doesn't mean Pat Tillman was this, you know, progressive liberal bastion, you know, he was he was a person he had a lot of different thoughts and a lot of different feelings. And we shouldn't be co opting anyone's legacy to fit a narrative that we want. Burn. 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 Burn it. You're here. Okay, Jessica. Yeah, so mine sort of dovetails with Julie and is no surprise to anyone who knows anything about me. On Thursday, the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, gave a long-awaited and ever since Trump was elected an inevitable speech about the future of Title IX. A quick refresher, Title IX is a federal statute that says no educational institution in the U.S. that receives federal funding can discriminate based on sex. Title IX is about protecting civil rights and equal access to education. One aspect of this is equal access to sports, another is equal access for pregnant students, and another, the most contentious one, the one DeVos talked about, is equal access to people who are victims of gendered violence at the hands of someone on campus. 
It's hard to go to class, to the dining hall, or simply walk across the green if you are worried that someone who has harassed or beat or raped you will be there. And so the Department of Education under President Obama published guidelines in 2011 to help schools figure out what they need to do in order to make sure they're handling the issues of harassment, domestic violence, and sexual violence correctly and seriously. It's no surprise, though, that DeVos has announced that the current Department of Ed is going to roll back those guidelines. In her speech, DeVos co-opted the language of survivors and their advocates while acting as if the number of false accusations is on par with the number of victims. This is statistically untrue, extremely untrue. In fact, it's more likely a male student will be a victim of harassment or assault than falsely accused of it. But where is the space for that nuance and reality in this administration? The Dallas Morning News editorial board called her speech a, quote, pity party for schools and the accused. DeVos got a lot wrong. The broken system is not because the guidelines are bad, but because people don't follow them. We need clarity and better training, not a rollback. And the education secretary of the president, who happily bragged about grabbing women by the pussy, had the gall to say the definition of harassment is now too broad. Quote, if everything is harassment, then nothing is. I'm sure her boss was pleased. Burn all of this. Burn it all. Oh, burn. burn. Oh, what does that even mean? Oh. Shereen. <laughs> yeah. When I stopped sleeping 18 hours a day, I came back and saw something that absolutely needed to go straight into the incinerator. This is coming from Calgary, Canada, and there was a story about a seven-year-old new hockey player, and she is going to be forced to sit out of the season because she refuses to wear a racist jersey. The young girl, and this interview was with her mother, the family identifies as Indigenous, and the mascot being used, and I hate that word, is actually of a warrior, quote-unquote, with war paint and feathers. Now, the young girl, who's seven, is, you know, obviously precocious enough to realize that this is not something she wants to wear and it's offensive. So her only choice was to sit on the bench, like to sit out the entire season. And it's her first, would have been her first year playing hockey. And she has a five-year-old brother who is following in her footsteps as well. So I found this appalling. And the Calgary Northwest Warriors Association, Hockey Association, this is their jersey. Now, one of the officials from the league had said that there had never been any complaints about this, which just gives us a little bit of an indication of how white hockey is, because there's actually been absolutely no complaints about this thus far. And they said they haven't changed it yet, but they might be open to doing so if there's more of a there's more of a you know concern of it. And I mean the fact that one particular family is so offended is not concerning enough, bothers me to no end. But the fact that this still happens and that we're still using indigenous culture as mascots and representatives is so horribly offensive. I just need to burn it down. Burn. Burn it. I'm going to be brief because my my nomination for the burn pile is less weighty than everyone else's for this week. Stealing signs using the Apple Watch is sad. <laughs> so sad. <laughs> even though I don't even love the Yankees, I don't. I don't even love the Yankees. I don't care. I'm in New York, but like, you know, I'm a soccer person and I love losers, so I'm totally all about the Mets. <laughs> I'm a teacher, though, and cheating infuriates me. It infuriates me. And they're using these Apple Watches to cheat in class and in baseball. So the <laughs> Red Sox use these Apple Watches extra cheat. Evidently, you can cheat if you run the signs you steal 
into the dugout, but you can't use electronics, which is also dumb, <laughs> but fine. Okay. So outside New England, this is very reminiscent of the Patriots who also violated NFL rules by spying. And there's no secret here that Boston sports community and I have a really rocky relationship. <laughs> so just one more time. I want to throw I want to throw the Red Sox on the burn pile, but while I'm at it, I'll just put Tom Brady and they're cheatering there too. Che- they say cheaters never win, but that's not true. They win all the time and it infuriates <laughs> me. So I'm throwing the Red Sox sad cheating onto the burn pile. Burn, 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 burn. Okay, after all that burning, it's time to celebrate some outstanding women. This week, our honorable mentions include Rebecca Lobo, the former UConn and WNBA star who was inducted this week into the Basketball Hall of Fame. Antonella Rocuso, normally featured in the media as Lionel Messi's wife, but this week she was featured for speaking out about the disappearance of student activist Santiago Maldonado in Argentina. We're also honoring Bibiana Steinhaus, who this weekend has become the first woman to referee a Bundesliga match, and Beth Moens for being the first woman to call a Monday night football game. And even with all that amazing badassery, our badass woman of the week is held completely and totally by Sloane Stevens, who came to play and treated her opponents viciously but respectfully and treated us all to some great tennis. Finally, this is the point of the show where we talk about what's good. How are you guys coping this week with the end of days? Shireen? I am sleeping a lot and recovering, but from travel, I am going to try to see Battle of the Sexes at the Toronto International Film Festival this week, which is really exciting. And I'm also going to read me a bit of some articles that I've been bookmarking on Tim Duncan because I love him. There's one about his kickboxing trainer in the Bleacher Report and how his kickboxing trainer opens up about what it's like to train with him. And for those of you that missed it, Tim Duncan, actually, we retweeted this on the Burn It All Down Twitter account. He wrote a piece for the Players' Tribune about the effects of Hurricane Irma in the hurricanes and the storms in the Virgin Islands, U.S. Virgin Islands and the islands. And I, our thoughts of with this, the Burn It All Down team is with all the survivors and victims of those storms. So I just wanted to add that in there. Thanks, Shireen. Jessica. Yeah. So I love my therapist. And I just wanted to say that publicly. <laughs> I'm, I'm so endlessly thankful for her, her that I found her and that I have the means to be able to sit down with her uh, for an hour every other week. Like she is literally a lifesaver. Also, though, this week, I got to give a shout out to birthday cake. It's a magical week in my family where my son and my husband both have birthdays. So I'm looking forward to my homemade cookie cake on Tuesday and a peanut butter and chocolate cake from my favorite local bakery, Sugar Mama's on Saturday. Yay, mm, birthday cake. Yay. I'll take this one. I'm gearing up for my Fulbright semester next spring, teaching in Argentina. Thank (laughs) you. And in preparation, I'm going to watch Wild Tales in Spanish. It's called Relatos Salvajes. And it's this crazy movie with these different short stories, but it comes together to make this amazing critique of masculinity and violence. 
and it includes an amazing Jewish wedding gone super, super wrong. It, <laughs> awesome. it is. It's crazy. It's like a wild ride. So it's aptly titled. Julie, what are you doing? I'm so excited that Top of the Lake is starting up again tonight. It's only going to be three episodes. This is one of those miniseries, I guess. It was eight episodes in 2013, I think, that I always, whenever people ask what they should watch, it's always at the top of my list. It starred Elizabeth Moss. It's on Sundance Channel. And it was this great sort of little Jane Campion project about this woman who lives mm-hmm. in the backwoods of New Zealand and she winds up investigating a missing girl who winds up to be pregnant. And so this one, it's now going to be three episodes and Gwendolyn Christie is in it as well as Elizabeth Moss. And I'm really excited about it. Wow. Cool. Awesome. Lindsay? Yeah. There was actually an article this week that made me really happy. It was by Dakota Crawford for the Indie Star. And it was an in-depth look at the relationship between Dewana Bonner and Candace Dupree, who are two WNBA stars who got married last fall and Bonner just gave birth to twins and is planning on coming back to the WNBA. Well, she's actually going to play overseas this year. Dupree's going to not play overseas so she can spend her time taking care of the babies. And then they're both looking to be on the same WNBA team next year. It's a story that makes me feel like there is actually progress being made because I, I, you know, just this past off season, we had both Diana Trazzi and Penny Taylor get married and open up a little bit about their relationship, which I think, you know, longtime WNBA fans have kind of known or suspected or insiders had known, but it had never really publicly been talked about. And you also had the same thing with Dupree and Bonner. With Dupree and Bonner, it's different because they're both still active and now they have kids and they're two, they're two black women who are opening up about their marriage and their love and talking about how they're making it work, wanting to play on the same professional team and raise a family. Like, that's incredible. And it makes me really happy to that they were willing to open up, that the Indy Star did this article, and that that this is something that's happening and that is okay. And I feel like it's a big deal, not because I want people to like look down on it, but just because I think it's a big deal that it's not a big deal. Do you know what I mean? So it makes made me really happy. Also, this is the I best love sport, those stories. This is the best sports day of the year. We have WNBA playoffs, NFL, and US Open men's final. I'm pumped. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. All right. That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can also be heard on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Google Play. We always appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please feel free to subscribe, rate, and tell us what you like or didn't about the show. We hope you'll follow us on Twitter at BurnItDownPod and on Facebook at BurnItAllDown. You can also reach us via our website at BurnItAllDownPod.com. That's where you'll find all our show notes and links to all the topics we discuss. And of course, you can email us at BurnItAllDownPod at gmail.com please take some time to check out our GoFundMe page and consider a small donation to help keep the pod going and allow us to make technical improvements. We're really grateful to everyone who has contributed thus far. For Shereen Ahmed, Julie DeCaro, Lindsay Gibbs, Jessica Luther, and me, Brenda Elsie, we'll see you next week. Hey!